the last time when we met, we studied Genesis 13 together. And there we learned what it looks like for God's people when they make godly choices. Choices that honor and exalt our great God. We also saw a contrasting choice that was made by Lot. Uh, the choices that Lot made and the choices that Abram made could not be more different and starker. Uh, there was this big-hearted, magnanimous generosity on the part of Abram in letting his nephew uh, uh, Lot receive the land of his choosing. That was contrasted with the selfish worldliness on the part of his nephew Lot, who shamelessly took what looked like the best from the world's perspective. The reality uh, of the world that we live in is this, that our choices have consequences. While we get to choose our choices, we don't get to choose the consequences that follow from those choices. And in this week and today, as we consider chapter 14, we see some of the consequences of those choices. We will learn that Lot quickly became absorbed into the worldly culture of Sodom and Gomorrah and was almost wiped out and in need of being rescued by his courageous uncle, Abraham. Abraham, on his part, chose to walk by faith and God blessed him greatly. We will also learn the difference between unjust and just war. When is it okay or not okay, biblically speaking, to be involved in a warfare? And in the midst of all of this, there is of this conflict and victory of chapter 14, a mysterious figure appears and then just as mysteriously disappears in this chapter, never to be mentioned again except once in Psalms in the Old Testament. Who is this individual? And why is he mentioned in the Bible? And what is his connection to the Lord Jesus Christ? Those are the questions that we'll look to get answers in our, from our text today. So turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14, and I'll read the first 12 verses. Now you'll notice that a lot of these names are very strange, and I'm sure you came tonight to hear the authorized pronunciation of those names. No, um, I, we will just pronounce. Someone said, just pronounce the Hebrew names confidently and it'll be taken as authoritative. So let's, let's go ahead and, and do that. First 12 verses of Genesis 14. And it came about in the days of Amraphal, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Chedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All of these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedor Laomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedor Laomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shaveh Kirathaim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who lived in Hazazon Tamar, or Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, 
that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphal, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell, fled, and they fell into them, but those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. I've titled tonight's lesson, Conflict and Character. Conflict and Character. So we consider the conflict that is taking place in the first 12 verses and the character that is displayed by Abram in the last 12 verses. Conflict and character. First of all, we begin with the conflict in Abraham's land, verse 1 to verse 12. But what exactly is going on in this text? Well, this is the first of, uh, uh, first of all, an international kind of a conflict or an international level warfare that is taking place. We have records of warfare that took place a thousand years before this event but no detailed record like the one that we have here in this particular chapter. Uh, so first of all, this is the first detailed record of a conflict and a first mention of war in the book of Genesis. Secondly, the places that are mentioned in this text, in the first three verses in particular, are what we can call as city-states. Uh, city-states, according to Britannica Encyclopedia, were a political system consisting of an independent city having sovereignty over a territory and serving as a center and leader of political, economic, and cultural life. In other words, there were small kingdoms that existed. Uh, in today's language, it would be small nations, but ruled by a king. That's what these city-states were. Now, there are two conflicts that are mentioned in these first 12 verses. The first one is mentioned in verse 1 to verse 4, and the second one is mentioned from verse 5 to verse 12. Now, what, what do those conflicts look like? Well, these are my own words at the top. There are four kings who came together to form what I've called the Eastern Bloc. They came from the eastern part of the world. And then there are five kings that form the Western Bloc, uh, which is essentially the kings that were kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim and, and Bela. And Moses tells us that the conflict took place in the valley of Sidim, verse 3. Uh, Moses supplies those words there. Uh, that is, it say, he says that is the Salt Sea. So people who are reading this text during his time would understand where the place is. Because it wasn't in existence, the name wasn't in existence during Abraham's time. And then, and then he records that there is a conflict that, that took place. Verse 3, all these came as allies to the valley of Sidim. Uh, but before that, in verse 2, he says that they made war with Bera and other kings. And as a result of that particular first conflict, the Western Bloc ended up serving the powerful Eastern Bloc by giving them goods and supplying for them food and other things. It's like they ended up paying tributes and payments to the Eastern Bloc. Now, they did that for 12 years. But in the 13th year, the text tells us that they rebelled. That is, they stopped 
paying or supplying them food and other things. They stopped giving them goods. They stopped paying them tributes. Uh, that's how they rebelled, verse 4. Now, it's natural then, as captors, which is the Eastern Bloc, who had enjoyed payments and supplies for the last 12 years, uh, that they would not remain passive in such a rebellion. Uh, this was probably not the only area that paid them these tributes. And if word were to get out to the other kingdoms that these Eastern Blocs ruled over, then the other kingdoms will also follow suit. And so that leads us then to the second conflict that is mentioned from verse 5 onwards to verse 12. In the 14th year, he says, the Eastern Bloc began a long and a powerful military campaign against the Western Bloc. But they don't begin by directly attacking the Western Bloc. If you were to follow your text uh, in your, in, in, in God's word, of God's word, verse 5 begins by how they begin that campaign. On the screen towards the north, uh, towards the right-hand corner of your screen, uh, you'll see I've mentioned the names. For example, they begin in the north by first defeating the Rephaims in Ashtaroth Karnaim, which is verse 5. Now, it's important for Moses to mention these things because of a few reasons. Uh, these individuals, these Rephaims, were considered as giants of their day, and they were very well known for their height. Uh, they were tall and they were powerful. And so with the defeat of the most powerful enemy, the smaller kingdoms slowly begin to crumble. Uh, this was followed by the defeat of the Zuzims, verse 5 again, in Ham, and Emim in Shaveh Kirathaim. Now the, the Eastern Bloc kept moving down south, so we are still on the right side of the screen. You see the dark line perhaps showing in red on your screen. Uh, is the route that they followed to destroy the Western Bloc ultimately. They kept moving south, but they had not yet gone against West, the Western Bloc. Then they ended up crushing the Horites, were six, near Mount Seir, as far as the southern tip of the land. Uh, this is the area that is currently the Gulf of Aqaba, so it's right here, where I'm pointing right now. So... From there, they turn back around, the text tells us, up north, defeating the Amalekites and the Amorites, verse 7. Now, having cut all the supplies from the north, from the uh, east, from the south, and from the west, they're now ready to unleash their power and might on these rebels, the eastern bloc. The blocks meet for battle in the valley of Sidim, verse 8. Notice what it says, and the king of Sodom, and so on and so forth. At the end, it says, came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim. And so they meet for battle there. In the first conflict, at least there was some mercy that the Eastern Bloc showed. But in the second conflict, there is no mercy shown. These five kings are badly beaten. And in verse 10, we are told that such was the defeat that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. The word there is actually hid. They hid. They hid as in a, a hid, hiding as in a cave in these star pits that they have mentioned, which were in that region, because they could not escape anywhere. They were utterly beaten. Now, this time, the Eastern Bloc took everything with them, the goods, the food supply, and they began making their way up north. And notice, as they're moving up north, they cross where 
uh, Abraham supposedly is living, and for them, Abraham was not even someone who was any threat to them. They keep moving north. They did everything that was anticipated from them. They crushed the enemy, they, they plundered all their goods, but they did end up making one mistake. Verse 12 tells us what, what that is. It says, they also took Lot, Abraham's nephew, and they took his possessions, family and goods, and they departed. And the reason for taking Lot is also mentioned very clearly. Notice at the end it says, for he was living in Sodom. In chapter 13, he had just pitched his tents near Sodom. He's now living in Sodom. Truly, choices that we make have consequences that follow from it. What are some lessons that we can learn from this particular section of this chapter? Well, first of all, conflicts are a part of the fallen world that we live in. Conflicts are a part of the fallen world we live in. Conflicts are not something that, is, that are surprising in the life of even the nation of Israel. If you were to read the book of Joshua and the entire book of Joshua, you will see the Israelites were involved in conflict. Violence and war and, and death are a result of, ultimately, of, of sin. Doesn't Paul write in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death? If you were to read the historical books, for example, uh, apart from Joshua, you have Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, we have war and conflict. It is a part of the fallen world that we live in. Uh, secondly, we also learned that choices have consequences. You know, we've been given all of this information to lead us to this last verse in section, in, uh, of, of the section in verse 12. It says uh, that they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Our choices have consequences. The reason that Lot was taken was he was living in Sodom. Lot, in chapter 13, we saw, chose this area to settle down. And from an external perspective, from a worldly perspective, this seemed like a great area to settle down. But from God's perspective, which is the only perspective that, that really matters, uh, this is where those who were exceedingly wicked sinners, they lived in this area. In fact, somebody has made a calculation in chapter 16, Abraham is shown to be 86 years old. In earlier in chapter 12, we are told Abraham is 75 years old. Uh, all of those, those two things I mentioned because it is very likely that Lot knew that these kingdoms of the Western Bloc were already under the, uh, the, the rule of the Eastern Bloc when he went in that direction. So Lot knew very well what he was getting into. Lot was swept up along with them. Our choices do have consequences. Paul, who writes in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Thirdly and finally, and there are many more that we can draw from this passage. I'm constantly amazed, as you should be, also about the historical accuracy of the Bible. In the 18th and the 19th century, doubts began to be raised about the, the first five books of the Bible, but in general, but particularly Genesis. And we were told that you cannot trust the records that are mentioned in this book 
specifically as you think of chapter 14, it was said no such kingdoms or kings existed during that time that, that Christians are claiming to have existed. But starting in 1964, archaeological discovery, also known as the Ebla Tablets, from the name of the location in Syria, brought to light hundreds of such tablets that unearthed all sorts of different names that, that existed 2,000 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. But the significant thing for our lesson today is that all of the locations that we just read about, all of them are mentioned in these tablets. God's word is, is accurate. The others are just catching up to that fact. And so conflicts are a part of the world that we live in, even as we think of this being a fallen world. Our choices have consequences, and then Genesis, as we know it, is a historically accurate record of events. That brings us to the second section of our passage today. It's God's promise to Abraham, or the character of Abraham on, on display. The character of Abraham on, on display. Uh, first, the reason why Abraham got involved in the first place is mentioned in verse 12, as I have already referred to earlier. How he found about his relative is mentioned in 13, and then from then on, we are told how he got involved in the conflict. One commentator writes about chapter 13, the earlier chapter. He writes, Abraham had a lot to lose. And in chapter 14, he says, Abraham had a lot to gain. Play on words there. What are some things that we can learn about Abraham's character from the passage in front of us? Well, let's read that passage and then we'll expound on it. Then a fugitive came and told Abraham the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother of Aner, and these were the allies with Abraham. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative, Lot, with his possessions, and also the women and the people." Then, after his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, that is the Kidron Valley as of today. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out the bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share. What a great display of character on Abraham's part. What are some things that we can learn from what he displays here? First of all, he displayed courage in the midst of conflict. Courage in the midst of conflict. It's a fugitive, ultimately. Verse 13, an individual who escapes from the conflict that, that comes to Abraham. 
And Abraham, for the first time in this verse, verse 13, is mentioned as Abraham the Hebrew. Now, we're not exactly sure about the origins of that particular word, Hebrew, mentioned here for the first time. But some have said that it is derived from one of the ancestors of Abraham by the name Eber. Now, we've looked at that when we studied Genesis 10 and 11. Some others have said that it is a pejorative kind of name given to nomadic tribes that lived during this time. And we're also told that he was living exactly in the location where we left him in chapter 13. At the end of chapter 13, we are told, Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre. And then we are told here that he is still there. And then we have his allies, verse 13 again, who fought with him are mentioned as well. Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and of Aner. Then we are told in verse 14 that Abram not only wanted to be decisive, but he also was ready for such a conflict. Notice verse 14. He led out, it says, his trained men. Abram was chosen by God. He was blessed by God. He was guided by God. He was protected by God. And yet he was also involved in training men for conflict. He was ready for such kind of a conflict. He saw no contradiction between the fact that God is powerful enough to protect him and the fact that he needs to be ready when a conflict arises. He sees no contradiction in that, and neither should we. He did not live in an imaginary world where everyone is nice and kind to each other and affirming of everything. You know, he lived in a real world like each one of us lives, a world where conflict exists, as we have seen, a world that has fallen, a world that is in rebellion against God. Isn't it Jeremiah who writes in his book, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick? Who can understand it? And so we read here, Abram is ready, verse 14, that he was ready and prepared. He was not only ready, the men that he had trained, it says, were born and raised in his house. That is, they were extremely loyal to him. And these were not hired servants, these were people that were born and raised by Abraham. So Abraham knew them very well, and they are 318 in all. And so with a committed band of 318 men, Abraham set out in pursuit of the eastern bloc, which made up, as, of, as we read earlier, of four mighty kingdoms that had just ravaged the entire region. In fact, one archaeologist was telling us, uh, as I was reading his books, he was mentioned that the land was so ravaged that for a number of years, no one lived there anymore. That is the kind of devastation these four kingdoms had unleashed. And the text here tells us in verse 14 that Abram actually pursued these four kings as far as Dan. Uh, in fact, uh, Dan was not uh, uh, the name of the region when Abram existed, but Moses inserts that there to... Uh, uh, to, to tell his current readers what's going on so that they would know which region it is. And so Dan as a region did not exist at the time of the event, but it did, did exist uh, even though the promised land was not yet fully captured, those would, would have been the kind of place that Dan would have received. And so Moses puts it there. It tells us that Dan was about 140 miles uh, uh, north of the Oaks of Mamre. And so we see... Abraham actually planning this event very well. There is 
a detailed planning that takes place, and then he divides his troops and then attacks the kings in the night. Now, this would be advantages in a few ways. Uh, the guards are down in the night as the leaders are probably drunk and, and relaxed, but also attacking in the night can cause a great deal of confusion in the enemy camp. And so Abraham chooses nighttime to attack. And so with a band of 318 men, and perhaps a few more from his allies, Abraham defeats them. And the text goes on to tell us that he pursues them another 100 miles north of Damascus. And when he does that, he brings back all that King uh, Shadur Laomer and his allies had taken, including the goods and, and possessions. But most importantly, he's able to bring back his nephew Lot and the people that were captured along with him. You know, once Abraham had heard about Lot being taken by these kings, he had a few choices in front of him, didn't he? He could have, first of all, done nothing. He could have said to himself, let Lot learn his lesson. Now, this will teach him to play with fire, or this will teach him not to choose what looks good from the worldly perspective. I'm not going to assume any risk for Lot's foolish choices, he could have said. Or he could have gone to Sodom and Gomorrah and the other little kingdoms that were there, Adma and Zeboim and Bela, and he could have tried to crush them even further and loot and capture whatever the Eastern Bloc had left behind. In a sense, he could have joined the Bloc and in multiplying the misery of the Western Bloc. That would be unjust, to say the least. But he chooses to act justly, and he chooses to act decisively. He chooses to act righteously. To want to act in a certain way is one thing, but to go ahead and do it is another. And Abraham chooses to act courageously in the midst of a conflict. But while Abraham chooses to act courageously in the midst of a conflict, don't miss the obvious lesson here. It was God who gave Abraham the victory. It was God who used Abraham as his instrument of deliverance. After all, we're talking about a mighty block of forces Four kings and their entire military strength who had just in a few days and weeks and months ago defeated everyone that came in their path. And so God makes the situation from a human point of view look impossible to be overthrown. You know, from the giants to the midgets, everyone was defeated by this eastern block. And the kings and the soldiers that came along with it, perhaps numbering in thousands, against such a mighty number, God sends Abram and his 318 men and perhaps a few more allies and they defeat the mighty Eastern Bloc. You see, without God, Abram was headed into a certain defeat. Isn't it Proverbs that tells us the horse is prepared for the day of battle but the victory belongs to the Lord. Someone had said, one with God is a majority. So true. If you're a child of God, you're a majority Already, God is already with you. No matter the challenge, no matter the height or the depth of issues that you're facing, no matter the obstacles, no matter the challenging times, what a comforting truth to remind ourselves that God is with us. But also when you are in a position to help, don't stop at praying for a person in need. Go and help them. Display courage, godly courage in the midst of conflict. Of course, let me encourage you to pray for those who you see in difficult times. 
as far as you're able to then go and also help them. That's what Abraham does here. As we consider this third conflict that is mentioned in verse 14 and 15, you can say, what is the difference really between the first two conflicts mentioned in verse 1 to verse 12 and the conflict that is mentioned here? There's war, there is violence, there is death, and there are goods that are involved. This is where I think it will be helpful to understand reasons of being involved in a war. Now, this is not a lesson in a military warfare, so I don't intend on spending a lot of time here, but I do want to spend a few minutes just to make sure we are all on the same page. It should be clear to all of us as we look even at the Ten Commandments that the Bible does not encourage a violent attitude or an attitude that encourages conflict. It repeatedly highlights the fact that everyone who is a part of this world is a part of a fallen world, a world in which sin exists, and that sin has impacted not only the earth and the environment that we live in, but also individuals that live in it. The Bible then provides a real and a true picture of the world we live in. But the Bible also does not propagate a pacifist attitude which says war is always wrong and unjustifiable, so don't ever participate in it. What then are some reasons, good reasons, to be involved in a war? This is also popularly known as the just war uh, theory. It was something that was first propagated by St. Augustine of Hippo. He gave eight reasons, and then it was revised by many thinkers, including Thomas Aquinas. I think he came down to three. But I think it essentially boils down to about five reasons that I can give. And again, I've drawn these principles from the scripture and be happy to interact with you if you have any questions. What are these principles? Well, first of all, a just war principle is that we need to have a just cause, a right reason to have a war. We should not be getting into a war for selfish reasons. Secondly, it has to be a last resort. That is, you should have... Um, exercised all options and exhausted all options before this particular option is being considered. So you have to think of war as always a last resort. Thirdly, it is to be something that is declared by a proper authority, not a rogue nation or a group, but one that is initi initiated and established by an ex accepted and established authority. A fourthly, it has to have a reasonable chance of success. A war is to be initiated only when there is a reasonable chance of success. It is not something that you expect to keep dragging on forever without a result, but one that has a chance of success. And fifthly and finally, the ends is to be proportional to the means used. What we mean by that is that the, the armor, the stuff that is used to achieve certain ends is to be in line with what, uh, what the ends are, the means are to be in line with, with the end. And so as you think of these things, you think of why certain wars are mentioned in the scriptures, including this one. You know, as you think of what is mentioned in the first two conflicts, verse 1 to verse 12, uh, they defied almost all of these principles. Uh, they were for selfish reasons, they were the first choice when it was exercised, they were unjust in every way, living uh, penalty and tributes to be paid to them, and so this was unjust. But what Abraham, was, uh, Abraham initiated was truly a just reason 
for getting into a conflict. It was not self-centered. It was not selfish. It was because his nephew was taken. It was to rescue him. It was to restore the property and goods that were stolen and that, that were captured. And so that is the difference between these two conflicts. And so as we consider Abraham, we see one who shows extraordinary courage in the midst of a conflict. You know, as we think of challenges in life, some of our biggest challenges come right after God gives us a dramatic victory. Wouldn't you call this a dramatic victory as we think of what Abraham achieves here? Uh, perhaps you've experienced a victory as well against all odds, and the victory that you've experienced is a display of God's grace and power in your life. And you know very well that you could not have accomplished the victories in your life in your own flesh, but what happens when you have those victories? What happens immediately after those victories are accomplished? How do you really respond? Or what happens to me as a preacher if I come down from here with a sense, you know, I, I preached one of the greatest messages that I could have preached? What kind of a mindset that can, can that set in? You know, the temptation after victories is to allow others to praise you and become dependent on you. How does Abraham respond after his victory? Notice verse 17 to verse 20. I've called this the second characteristic that Abraham displays. It is that he was relentlessly God-centered. Imagine hundreds and perhaps thousands of people returning to the land that they were taken from as captives. The victory and the triumphal march with which Abraham is now approaching the Oaks of Mamre and then we are told that the king of Sodom, verse 17, went out to meet with him in the valley of Shaveh. But before we are told what transpired between the king of Sodom and Abram, another individual suddenly is dropped in the middle of the scene, verse 18. If you were watching the scene unfold in front of you, perhaps on a stage, it's as if two men are talking with each other, and suddenly a third appears right in the middle of them out of nowhere. Notice verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. I mean, that's an amazing text, an amazing statement to make. What can we learn about this individual? Well, he's just mentioned here in three verses, 18, 19, and 20. What does Melchizedek mean? Well, his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Malak means king, and Zedek means righteousness. He was the king of righteousness. The name Melchizedek actually occurs only twice in the Old Testament. Once here, and the second time in verse 4 of Psalm 110. It says here in verse 18 that he was king of Salem. Salem is popularly understood as meaning Jerusalem. So it would not have been odd that since the city was right there uh, next to the Kidron Valley that these two, these three men are meeting there. Tells us that he brought out bread and wine. Now, that's uh, an expression to let us know that he brought out abundance of food, everything that they needed for themselves. And so he brings out sumptuous food. But he is not only a king, the text tells us that he was a priest of God Most High at the end of verse 18. It says that that word for God, El Elyon, is only used five times in the Old Testament, 
And four of those times it's used right here in this text. Quite a unique title and role. Also, as you look at verse 19 and 20, he was superior in spiritual status to Abram because the text tells us that he blessed Abram, verse 19. He invoked the God of Abram, one, and he says, Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And then in verse 20, it tells us, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. He ends up reminding Abram who actually gave him the victory. He says, it is the God most high who has delivered you from your enemies. And if that is not enough as far as mystery and surprise is concerned, Abram ends up giving Melchizedek a tenth of all at the end of verse 20. Of all that he had, of all the things that he owned, he gives them a tenth. All of these things in just three verses. And just as he appears out of nowhere, he also disappears, not to be mentioned in the rest of Abraham's accounts, not to be mentioned even in Genesis. So the question is, who is Melchizedek and why does, it, why does he really matter? Now, based on where Abraham actually met Melchizedek and the fact that Melchizedek was the first royal priest mentioned in the scriptures, we can we can draw some things as far as who he was. Well, first of all, he is in a Canaanite land, so we can assume that he is a Canaanite by background. Text also tells us that he was a priest of God Most High. You see him using a name for God, which Abraham then uses while he's talking to king of Sodom, meaning that they're talking about the same God. So it's a fascinating passage to, to look at. But his significance is understood really as we read Psalm 110. So that's where I would encourage you to turn. Psalm 110. It's a psalm of David. And notice what David writes about Melchizedek. David writes, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, just to kind of summarize this particular psalm, here we learn that someone will come from David's line who he calls Lord, and he will receive the Messianic inheritance. That is, someone from David's line will ultimately be the Messiah. He will be a king, but also that he will be a priest in the line of Melchizedek, verse 4. Notice the fact that as you consider the law, you know, a priest is in the line of Aaron, not Melchizedek. And so this is a special individual. And this individual's priesthood, it says, will last forever. So Psalm 110 is telling us that the Messiah would be both a priest and a king. He would have an eternal kingdom and he would have an eternal priesthood. When we come to the New Testament, we are told that our Lord also was a priest. As you think of Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 7. And while the priests in the Aaronic priesthood, those who came from that line, they offered sacrifices for themselves as well because they also were sinners, just like the rest of the Israelites. Jesus is mentioned as a priest who was a fulfillment of all of those sacrifices and a unique priest. 
But the truth is that Jesus did not come from the Aaronic priesthood. He did not come from the line of the Levites. He was from the tribe of Judah. And so the writer of Hebrew tells us that he was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek, as we've been introduced in Genesis 14, is a priest that is mentioned there. And in a book that is filled with genealogies, there is no mention of any genealogy of Melchizedek. He is without reference also to his birth and death. I think that is the key to understanding this particular text and also the text in the book of Hebrew. You see, in the world in which these events took place, a man became a priest on the basis of his genealogy. In Israel, if you are not a part of the tribe of Levi, you could not be a priest. Not all Levites, by the way, were priests. But all priests were from the tribe of Levi. The high priest, as an individual, came from the tribe of Aaron, or from the line of Aaron. But Jesus, as I mentioned before, did not come from the tribe of Levi. How then could he be a priest? Well, in the same way as Melchizedek was a priest. Just as Melchizedek's priesthood was not based on his genealogy, the priesthood of Jesus was also not based on his genealogy. Melchizedek's priesthood, we also learn, was of a higher order because we learn here in chapter 14, verse 20, that Abraham actually gave him a one-tenth of all. And because Abraham gave him a tenth, and Levi was a descendant of Abraham. Remember, Levi was the son of Jacob. Jacob was the son of Isaac. And Isaac was the son of Abraham. So because he was uh, from the tribe, I mean, from from the lineage of Abraham, we can assume that in a sense, the Levitical priesthood also gave a tenth of a tribute to Melchizedek. I know that was a little perhaps heavy for some, but it's helpful to understand why is Melchizedek compared to the Lord. Melchizedek, in the end, was a type of Christ in these ways. He prefigures the Lord's ministry. That is how and why he is mentioned here. If we were dealing with Hebrews, we would go into more detail, but I think that's helpful for us to kind of move on. So back to our text in chapter 14. By giving a tenth to Melchizedek, verse 20, Abraham honors him. Abraham is implicitly and explicitly accepting the fact that Melchizedek is indeed a representative of God. Not only that, by giving him tenth of all that Abraham owned, Abraham is adding his amen to what Melchizedek has just mentioned. Remember in verse 20 he says, Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. You see, Abraham was zealously God-centered in his outlook. He removed the spotlight from himself and he put it where it rightly belongs on God alone. It was he indeed who had delivered them from his enemies. And just as he's placed in the middle of the action, Melchizedek is once again removed from the scene and it is back to king of Sodom. And here we learn a third characteristic or character attribute of Abram. Thirdly and finally, he jealously guarded the name of God. He jealously guarded the name of God. Now don't get me wrong, God does not need us to guard his name. When I say jealously guarded his name, it is to say that Abraham did everything he could to make sure that God's name was not 
dishonored. Can you imagine here the audacity of a defeated king, the king of Sodom, to bargain with a man who has just saved his face? We have Bera, the king of Sodom, approaching Abram in verse 21 and telling him and trying to strike a deal with him. You can keep the goods for yourself, Abram, but give me the people. Because without the people, there is no kingdom, so let me at least have the people, he says. The fact is, the fact is that Abram, as the victor, he could have kept both people and the goods. Instead, he says, I want those who came with me to receive their wages. They fought on my behalf, verse 24. Let them have their share. As for me, I'm not going to take any part in the spoils. I made a commitment to the Lord, he says, that I will not take anything from you. Lest you say, notice, that you have made me rich. Oh, no. I want that right. I want that place only for God. If Abram is rich and powerful, I want it to be known that it was Lord God Most High who made him rich and powerful. I want to take no credit away from my great God, zealously guarding the name of God. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to behave in a way where God is robbed of his glory and of the credit that is due to him. What an astonishing statement. And what an amazing man of God Abraham is. You know, as we walk through this passage, we've already drawn many lessons, both from the conflict and character of Abram. But there's one that I want us to focus on as we draw our time to a close here. One lesson that I think ties everything that is mentioned. You know, one of the options that Abram had was to let Lot be, was not to do anything. Let him face the consequences of his actions. You know, in a similar way, if God wanted to, he would be well within his rights to let us be and wallow in our own sins. He would be perfectly just and right in letting us face the consequences of our sins, which is eternal punishment, an eternity apart from God, which the Bible calls hell. That is what you and I deserve. But just as Abraham doesn't sit still until he does the right thing, the just thing on his part, he didn't have to, but he does it. God does the same thing with you and me. I want to read Philippians 2, 2 to 11 as we close our time. Philippians 2, 2 to 11. You can, you're welcome to turn there, but you don't have to. Philippians 2, 2 to 11. Paul writes, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he says this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, for this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
What an amazing summary of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. In a few verses, Paul takes us from eternity past into eternity future. Also, he takes us to a time before incarnation, to a time before God became man. He humbled himself, and then to a time when he was a man, and he died for you and me on the cross of Calvary, and then to a time where he's highly exalted again. You know, Abraham gave his all to rescue Lot from the kings that marched and invaded from the east. He rescued and he restored him. But you know, Abraham's rescue and restoration was only temporary. But our Lord gave us all, and he too rescues and restores. And his rescue is eternal. Because his kingship is eternal. His rescue and restoration is eternal because his priesthood is eternal. What's the lesson that connects all of this? You see, in Abraham, we have an example of what our Lord did for us in rescuing us from the penalty of our own sin. We close our time in a word of prayer as we get into small groups. What a great God you are, and greatly to be praised. So many things that we can gather from this chapter, O Lord, but we are thankful for this lesson. That like Abraham, you could have let us wallow in our sins. You could have let us be, yet you sent your son for us, who rescued us from your wrath, from the penalty of our sins, from the eternal destiny that each one of us deserves of being apart from you in hell. So we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray for someone here who does not know you in this way, does not know you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, may it be that even before they go to bed tonight, even before they sleep, even before they leave this place, Lord, that they would turn to you in repentance and faith and place their trust in you alone because you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. We give you glory. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.